Hello and welcome. I'm Philip Carlson. I'm Chief Economist of Boston Consulting Group, and you're listening to the BCG Henderson Institute's Thinkers and Ideas podcast series. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Philippe Aguillon to discuss his book, The Power of Creative Destruction. He is a professor of economics at the London School of Economics and the Collège de France and INSEAD, and formerly of Harvard University. Philippe, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. Good morning. So, Philippe, in your book, you write that capitalism is confronting an identity crisis. What are the most pressing problems of capitalism that need to be addressed, in your view? They are not the same across countries. In the U.S., the COVID crisis has revealed the weaknesses of the social model. We've seen many people, you know, dying, many people falling into poverty because they lost their job, many people uh, losing health insurance because they lost their job. At the moment, they needed the, way, the health insurance. So you see, whereas other capitalist countries like Denmark or France or Germany or, you know, most European countries managed to protect and guarantee health insurance during the, throughout the crisis. So the, the U.S., that's why Biden had to spend so much, because he had to make up for the absence of assistance of the U.S. system for the particular the weak and the have-nots. And so the, I think there is a need to rehold the social model in the U.S. You know, for example, uh, uh, Angus Deaton and, and Case have shown how, you know, how much, you know, the, the death mortality uh, in the 50-54 white and Hispanics has increased a lot on educated, because, mostly because they job insecurity that in, induces family instability. And they, they really documented that. And, and whereas in Denmark, for example, when you lose your job, There is no negative consequence on health. That's my colleague, Alexandra Roulet, that shows that. And we explain that in chapter 11 of our book. So we can see that, you know, be it against a macro risk like the financial crisis or COVID, or being against the risk of losing your job, you see Denmark does much better than the U.S. needs to rehold its system. But on the other hand, when it comes to innovation, then the U.S. are much better than everybody else. The vaccines mainly came from the U.S., Uh, you have the, uh, in biotech, you have the National Science Foundation, National Institute of Health, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, all that is to finance basic research. But then you have the BARDA, the Biologic Advanced Research Development Agency, without which we would not have the vaccines uh, produced on such a scale. You would not have been able in one year to go from the basic uh, technology of ARN messenger to mass, mass production of vaccines. So you have the BARDA and you have venture capital, and you have, you know, private equity, and you have institutional investors. You have a whole ecosystem of innovation, way superior to what we have in Europe, and in particular in France. So my dream capitalism is a capitalism that would be as innovative as the American capitalism, and as protective and inclusive as the Danish system. And I think it's possible. And we explain in the book, we think it's possible. Is this risking stereotyping the two variants of capitalism a little bit, though? So you cast it as a trade-off between growth and innovation on one side and social protection on the other side. But if you look at the COVID crisis, I mean, both the Trump and the Biden administration were extremely effective in pushing out fiscal stimulus, getting the checks to households, and effectively backstopping the population from this enormous economic shock. And then on the other side, You know, the innovation wasn't purely American. If you look at the Pfizer vaccine, no, this is sure. this is Turkish technology in a German startup, which is now fed but into a major. You're right, mm -hmm. but it was continued in the U.S. Uh, you have many startups in Europe, 
but very often they have to go to the US. Of course, I'm being a bit caricature because of course you have innovation in Europe and of course you have some social protection in the US. But it's true that, you know, I've seen so many, you know, I was driven by a, you know, by a taxi driver and he said, look, let this house of mine, I had to sell it because my wife got cancer. And to, 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 to have my wife properly treated, I had to sell my house. You don't have wow. to do that in France or, or, or Denmark. You see, you have to improve. But we have also to do much better on innovation. You imagine that ARN Messenger was discovered in France at Institut Pasteur in the 60s by Francois Jacob, uh, who was a Nobel Prize in medicine. And it's the, in the US that it was developed because whenever you have a successful startup, they have to move to the US. When I was in, I live, I spent 20 years of my life in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The consul, the French consul of Boston, they would always tell me, you know what my main job is? to welcome startups from France who look for extra financing to grow. That's where their main job, all the while. They, the, the consul was changing, but the job was not. Right. All right, so in your book, you position the concept of creative destruction as a better paradigm to understand the growth process, the neoclassical models, which have focused on capital accumulation to explain the growth process. Why is that your preferred lens? Can you run us through your main arguments? But you see, when it comes, I mean, you know, first, I mean, Robert Solo did a very powerful model and which is a bit the benchmark of growth economics and very elegant, parsimonious. It's the benchmark model, but it's a model that tells you that without technical progress on the reasonable assumptions, you don't have long run growth sustained. That's what Solo shows. So you need them to explain technological progress. And when you want to explain it, it's innovation mainly. But the problem is that there was no theory putting innovation in growth economics. And that's what I did with my colleague, Peter Howitt. We, because I had heard about Schumpeter in class, you know, this guy who say, ah, oh, but there is innovation, there is creative destruction. And I asked myself when I was a student, where is the model? There was no model. Where is the empirics? There is no empirics. So over the past 20, 34 years, we built a model with Peter Howitt based on, you know, three main ideas, long-run growth driven by innovation, Innovation is driven by entrepreneurial activities motivated by monopoly, by innovation rents. And the third idea is creative destruction. The new replaces the old. We build a, a paradigm, a model around that. And then we, we tested that model with your micro data. And, and, and in fact, after us, there were a very talented young generation that took over and developed sophisticated versions of the model, which were confronted with very rich micro data set. And so that's why you now, Super and growth is mainstream now because we, uh, with my with my colleagues, with my friends, we developed the whole corpus of analyses. You see, which did not exist before. And you know, when you ask question, why did the takeoff uh, occur in in Europe in 1820, not in China uh, in the Middle Age, where China was so inventive? When you want to ask yourself, you know, why technological revolution did not generate mass unemployment? When you want to ask yourself, why do we have growth decline in the US despite uh, the AI and IT revolutions. All these questions, why do some countries start touching up with advanced countries and then stop in the middle? Uh, or why Japan grew very fast up to the late 20 and then stop growing? All these questions can be explained with the Schumpeterian paradigm. They cannot be explained with the neoclassical paradigm. But Joseph Schumpeter himself was more pessimistic about creative destruction as a sustainable engine of capitalism. So he believed that rent-seeking would stifle and keep out new innovation to protect existing rents. And ultimately he thought that would yeah. limit capitalism's viability. 
And yeah. I think if you, if you look around today, I mean, you have some echoes of that prediction. Yeah. We have oligopolistic market structures in many places. We have tech platforms that are monopolistic yeah. and are yeah. buying up new competition. So why are you more optimistic than the progenitor's yeah. and, and, own and idea? You're right. In fact, in our, when I talk about secular stagnation, why do we have the growth decline? We absolutely attribute the growth decline to the fact that the IT revolution allowed the big famongs firm, you know, uh, Facebook, uh, Google, uh, to invade the whole economy. When they did, productivity growth went up. That's what you observe between 95, 2005 in the US, you see TFP growth booming because that's when these firms expand. But once they expanded, they discouraged innovation by other firms. You see what I mean? So you have exactly that pessimism of Schumpeter that the innovators of yesterday tend to be a break to future innovation. But we believe well, our optimism is not the kind of Panglossian uh, optimism, it is uh, optimism of the will, optimism of the fighters. It, the idea that there are forces that would allow you to uh, counteract that. And uh, so, for example, in the case of the secular stagnation, we explain how competition policy and to adapt competition policy to the digital era can be a way to, you know, to put an end to the decline of growth in the US. And uh, you, but for that, you have to fight lobbying, you have to re rethink competition policy, but that can be done. And that can be done because you have something called civil society. We insist a lot in the book, in the triangle between the firms who innovate, the states that can enforce competition, and to some extent, separation of power can get you somewhere with the judges, the judiciary that controls the executive. But what's very important is civil society. For example, you had new elections in the US and Biden came. Why Biden came? Because some people uh, prevent that, try to prevent people from voting, but they could not prevent people from voting. That's the civil society. And civil society can be, can be very helpful to make sure that the social contract is respected. I think there is a role, and the media, of course, you are, the media is part of the civil society. So this triangle between firms, state, and civil society Let's return to the notion of, of an identity crisis, which we talked about in aggregate. You also already commented on the differences, the different variants of capitalism, including what might be done in the US. So I think the way you, you lay it out in the book, there is the US variant, which is strong on innovation and growth, and the downside is social protection. Yeah. In Europe, it's the flip side. We mentioned yeah. you know, the reality is a little more messy than, than the clear separation, but I understand your argument. What do you think in Europe ought to be done to rectify the imbalance between growth and innovation on one side and, and protection on the other side? Uh, you know, I mean, some first, I mean, you know, in a country like France, uh, taxation, I think, uh, uh, you see, in the US, you need to increase taxes, maybe. But in France, you needed to reduce them. There was excessive ta taxation of capital income prior to Macron. Macron put it back to on track. You see what I mean? He, he did what the Swedes did in the early 19, uh, 1990s. So first, there was excessive taxation of capital income, which would discourage uh, innovation. Also, in, in France, you have excessive regulation. For example, you know, beyond 50 employees, all kinds of regulation fall upon you. That discourages innovation. And I showed that in, in recent work with Antonin Bergeau and John Van Rienen. Also, for example, in France, we have very, something very special. You would tax on also inputs. You know, usually you should tax profits. But in France, we have this speciality of uh, input uh, taxes. If I buy an input, even if I make zero profit, I have to pay taxes. But that, of course, encourages firms to outsource, to go elsewhere. So that's, I think, the taxation regulation has to be revised. And also, the problem is that in, uh, in many European countries, we underinvest in basic research compared to the US. Mm -hmm. We 
you don't have the equivalent of the DARPA and the BARDA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or the Biologic Advanced Research, or the ARPA Energy, that's very important forces. And venture capital and institutional investors are underdeveloped. So it's the whole ecosystem of innovation that we need to rebuild and develop to get really innovation up to speed. But taxation is precisely what finances the protection system in Europe. So how can you say we need to work on that? Are we not defunding that, that side no, of the equation? No, because I think there are taxes that are good. I don't say you should have low tax. I think you should have reasonable tax. I agree with Biden who wants to increase taxes. I agree with the IMF that say you should align taxation of multinationals across countries. I wanted the tax system of Sweden and Denmark, and they are protective. They are much more egalitarian than France is. And you need active labor market policies. For example, flex security. Denmark, why is it that when you lose your job in Denmark, you don't, uh, you don't fall into illness or you don't uh, you know, go into taking pills? Because when you lose your job, you have income guarantee 90% for two years. You are, they, the, the, you are retrained and the state helps you find a new job. And that's very important. And that, in fact, was a reform that both helps the creative destruction and therefore it, and also makes the system more inclusive and more productive. So it's not a, or it's not that you choose either to be US or to be innovative, protective. So beyond Europe and the US, I didn't see as much discussion of China in the book. And when you think about yeah. China in that trade-off between growth and protection, you know, China seems to be heavily skewed on the growth and maybe also innovation side. I think China is now more credible, not just an imitator, but an innovator in terms of its growth model going forward. But on the protection side, its systems are, you know, famously scant. Uh, there isn't all that much healthcare, pension systems, uh, education system, a lot of items or a lot of budget items that families are saving for. So how do you view China in that trade-off? And, and what does it mean for China's path ahead? Is it, is it essentially spelling trouble in your view? You know, I mean, uh, well, first, I think that China is a great country that has to be commended on everything. I mean, it's, uh, the Chinese miracle has to be commended. You know, I mean, it's, uh, are, it's very impressive what they have achieved. So I will not, always speak with respect about China. But it's true that China moved towards a different type of capitalism. We, we speak about it, you know, in parts in the book with, uh, you know, in a very elliptic way, probably. It's, it's a kind of capitalism where social services are associated with large-state owned enterprises. So if you're not working for the state-owned enterprise, you don't have as many social services. So they still have to, to you know, to come to grip with what would be a true social model that would work you know, in the long term. Also, the problem with China is that it's a, it's a non-democratic capitalism. And uh, the problem with that, and we talk about that in the book, is that I think it's okay if you are catching up. If you are in the business of catching up, it's, you know, I think democracy is important in itself. But in terms of growth, it's not a big deal that you are not fully democratic when you are catching up. Because you say, you do this, you do that. But when you are in the business of innovating at the frontier, we think that freedom is important. At the frontier, you don't exactly know where you are going. And the big union innovations that you make at the frontier, they require a lot of freedom. You see, you need to be free to interact, to do whatever you want, to, uh, you know, to, to try and, uh, and, and there my feeling is that China will be good at catching up, maybe at innovating in, in improvement technology. But so far, China has not generated uh, breakthroughs. You see, you don't have a breakthrough that you owe to China. And, uh, and I think because freedom is crucial there, uh, you need the freedom part. And I think without the freedom, they can always be a close catch up. You see what I mean? They could always decide that 
we won't be the frontier guys. We will be next to the frontier guys. Um, returning to the topic of institutional capture of incumbents who own and, and earn their rents and try to keep out new innovators so that the original Schumpeterian concern about creative destruction. So if you think about today's rent seekers operating in that way, which sectors in, say, the U.S. economy do you think are most affected by that topic? And what would have to be done to rectify that? It's the IT producing and the IT using sectors. We show that very clearly in chapter six. Uh, we saw that that's where the growth went up the most in between 95 and 2005. But that's where growth went down the most since then, you see. And so there you need to have you need to adapt competition policy to the digital era. And uh, there, there is a very interesting book by Richard Gilbert from uh, University of Berkeley. And we, we have a box summarizing a bit the argument of Rich Gilbert. And Richard Gilbert says, it will, when you think about merger and acquisition, usually we used to reason in terms of market share and market definition. Do you have a big market share or not? When, I think the way that he proposed, and I think he's right, that you should move towards competition policy that would say, if you do, uh, before I say yes or no to a merger and acquisition, I should uh, I should assess whether that merger will uh, favor or prevent new entry or will favor or prevent new innovation. Do you think COVID will be a catalyst for a softer type of capitalism? Has it set something in motion that will help rebalance the trade-off between growth and, and protection? Or is this just a, a pause and a shock that will be overcome and then it's back to normal? Uh, look, look, I can see what's going on in the U.S. nowadays. I hope it will, there will be something from it. Now, for the moment, I see Biden giving out money, but I don't see Biden yet building a new social system. Uh, we know that's not so easy. Huh? And, uh, and in Europe, I really hope that uh, steps will be taken towards, uh, you know, reholding the innovation model. I think, I hope there will be. They try to, there are some... Uh, you know, embryonic, embryonic uh, efforts to build a, a European Barda with ERA, H-E-R-A, ERA. I don't know if that will be successful, but I think at least now uh, in Europe, there was always the idea that Europe should be competition policy and Maastricht treaty. Now they start thinking, no, we need to do something together to uh, assert, you know, our, you know, the ability to innovate and, and, and reindustrialize. So if, I hope that, uh, I hope there will be something, but you know, again, that's a fighting optimism. It's not that I'm optimistic and say it will happen, no. But uh, I think at least we can we we can use this as a stepping stone for the COVID for these moves. So uh, you mentioned a few times the triangle in your book, where you say the interaction of civil society, yeah. markets, yeah. and the state yeah. really matters, and that's that's very intuitive. It, it makes a lot of sense if we think about the specifics, the remedies. You mentioned tax earlier for Europe, but if you think about your long list of instruments and policies you can think of, what is the priority? What's the hierarchy, prioritization of those themes? And um, are they equally important? Are they situational? What is it that you see as, as the most pressing? Yeah, they might be a bit you know, situational. Let, let me take the green innovation. We know what's very interesting with COVID, you know, some people in France believe that with zero or negative growth, that was the best way to fight climate change. We had a natural experiment there. You know, with the first lockdown in France, GDP went down by 30%. CO2 emissions went down by only 8%. So that was a very clear way to show, you know, we need more than that. And we need green innovation. Well, green innovation, we know that, and we explained that in chapter nine of the book, 
firms spontaneously don't innovate green. If you have innovated in dirty technologies in the past, you tend to innovate in dirty technology in the future. So you need the state to re uh, redirect technical change. You can redirect technical change with a carbon tax, but you can also redirect technical change with industrial policy, with my ARPA energy. You know, in France, we have nuclear plants, we have hydroelectric plants, we have you know, research in, uh, on nuclear fusion. And uh, th there we need all this investment and research. You see the R&D leg. Huh? And then the consumers also play a big role. I have done some work recently with Roland Benabou, Alexandra Roulet, and Ralph Martin, showing that consumers and competition between firms play a big role. So if consumers value uh, green technologies and value environment, then th that combined with competition leads firms to do that. You see, because if I don't do it, you will do it, Philippe. If I don't innovate green, you will do it, and you will get the consumers, and you, and you will steal them from me. Okay, so we—that's also very effective force to induce. You know the Bitcoin movement, and where people know and they want to buy from firms that are clean, not firms that are dirty. This movement is becoming important. That's also a big driver of green innovation. So again, you see the triangle: the the firms innovate, the state can have industrial policy and the carbon tax, but the the civil society, its consumers, its shareholders, its corporate social responsibility, that's also a very big force. It's, it's, it's uh, green finance, which now is becoming something important, uh, will also be a big leg there. Well, that's an example of my plan. So all told, when you think about your trade-off between growth versus protection, when you think about the different variants of capitalism, the pros and cons, and the ability to change of those variants of capitalism, which economy would you bet on from today's perspective? I, I don't say, I would say that particular country or that country. I think we have to find, each country has to find its way ahead. We know that well, there are good things of the American model. There are good things, you know, you have a fantastic university system, uh, the, the basic research, the innovation uh, ecosystem is fantastic. In Europe, we have, well, it's true, Denmark is a country, but it's a small country. So the thing is that can you generalize Denmark a big country that's a big issue and also to countries which are more heterogeneous you know with the you know people ethnic heterogeneity and uh, Denmark is kind of very unique small population very homogeneous and uh, so you see you have big challenges it's not that you can just with a magic wand say I want Denmark everywhere is that you have to find ways to and that's why I think I don't think it's so easy that you just say imitate Mr. X well, there are things to be to take to try and and each country you you, you won't try ready to wear a Danish uh, system. You will adapt, you will experiment. And uh, so I would not say that it's true that my feeling is that the Scandinavians have found a way to reconcile growth with green and inclusiveness. They found something there, but you know, there they, they are still problems. You know, the Sweden did some reforms which were good, some reforms which are not so good. And they have to now question those reforms. You see what I mean? It's not that there is a mother country that they got there, they found the whole thing and this is it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to read the book and to zoom in on some of the ideas with you today. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you.